In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Alistair Monk about scaling CSS at Heroku using utility classes. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 128. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wannan, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Alistair Monk. How's it going, man? Yeah, really good, thank you. Great to be here. So for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind uh, just briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a user experience architect here at Salesforce, um, and what that means is, because uh, obviously it's a bit, I think it's a title that people aren't super familiar with architects uh, and UX, more used to sort of hearing sort of product designer and stuff like that. Um, so I kind of work across product design, product strategy, and engineering to a certain degree, um, and sort of bridge, I guess, those sort of three disciplines. Um, and at Salesforce, I'm mostly focused on working on our Heroku product and our, our sort of developer experiences on the Salesforce platform. So anything that you're building on top of kind of Salesforce data, if you're a developer with us, um, that's, my, that's my world. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. So the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is this was probably like maybe a year and a half ago or more, um, I had discovered that Heroku had switched from like a bootstrap based sort of CSS homegrown sort of like framework and system into mm -hmm. something that was based on tachyons. And I was working early stages on Tailwind CSS at the time, which was like a very similar framework to tachyons in terms of the approach. And I thought that was really interesting to see because Heroku's like a big well-known name and i thought it'd be really interesting to learn more about uh what motivated you to make that switch and what some of the benefits you've seen have been and what sort of some of the original problems that you want to solve were so i think um maybe a good place to start would just be talking a little bit about like what were you doing in terms of like css architecture and css approach at heroku uh, before you started introducing any like tachyon stuff into the product Wow, yeah, and I, I think the answer is that we weren't really doing anything, which is why we had to kind of uh, overhaul what we were doing with um, the Tachyon's approach. So I guess I'll, I'll set a little bit of context first. Um, for anyone that's been a Heroku customer for, I don't know, a few, uh, at least sort of five or six years, they'll remember, I think, famously that our uh, dashboard interface was like very dark, these sort of very dark purples and uh, sort of shades of black. Um, and just about when I joined the company, which I think was about, yeah, getting on for five years ago, they just launched a new version of the dashboard, which had been um, rewritten from being a Rails app um, and Rails sort of handling the, the views of that yep. to a uh, Ember JS app. And it's still and an Ember app today, right? That's right, yeah. We're all in on Ember and we absolutely love it. Cool. Um, and obviously at this point as well, like Ember was very much in its infancy and uh, there's a lot of stuff that exists in Ember today, like Ember Data, which we had sort of homegrown um, mm -hmm. solutions for back then. But yeah, we the, the other big change that happened with the sort of Ember switch was, was taking it from a dark interface to a light one, essentially. Um, and we... Uh, chose Bootstrap for that, I think, purely to get it just off the ground and into a product as quickly as possible. And, you know, I think Bootstrap is absolutely great for that still today. Um, but we, we didn't really uh, lay down, I guess, any sort of laws around how this thing would scale um, from what was relatively simple um, feature set into something which is now super complex and you know we're talking back like around this time as well the dashboard the dashboard uh user interface was probably not used as much as our command line interface yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like you know this the git push heroku masters are obviously like it's it's as part of our brand as the logo is um and so i think we hadn't really even thought about how much might actually go into this product. But now, of course, in 2019, 
we've got some super complex like functionality in there and continuous deployment and uh, tailing logs and all sorts of stuff that you can do from within the, um, the UI, um, which we just hadn't planned for back then. Um, and so I remember early on when we were trying to kind of tame a little bit as we were sort of growing uh, the pages in this application out, we sort of tried to apply uh, BEM principles yeah. to the templating and to the star sheets. And that was, I think, the first, uh, one of the first projects that I actually worked on um, at Salesforce um, was bringing some order to, okay, what are the sort of patterns that we're using and documenting them and documenting some of the classes that we were using and creating essentially a kind of you know, I guess today you would call it a design system, but I think sure. it was slightly pre that uh, <laughs> that language back then. Um, and I think what we found was that it just becomes really inflexible, right? Because if your if the shape of your DOM changes, you have to change the style sheet as well, because suddenly your your BEM notation doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, and we had also because we hadn't also you know, really enforce this as a way of working uh, and being really strict about it, it just got super out of control. And I guess it was, you know, moving on, fast forwarding a couple of years was when I first saw Tachyons and I had followed Adam Morse's kind of other uh, work before and was, I really liked his kind of ideas. And Tachyons just kind of immediately clicked with me, right? This idea of like, I don't have to write generic CSS uh, all the time. I can just use this kind of library of um, classes to apply to some HTML. And the only CSS I do have to write is really specific to us. Um, and what I really liked about it, and I, I think I played around with it on some side projects before, you know, thinking about bringing it into Her Heroku. What I really liked about it was that you can, it makes the HTML really easy to delete without having to figure out what CSS kind of is attached to it. Um, and I think that's, in a way, is kind of one of the most important things for me in terms of building interfaces on the web is having, having code that's easy to delete is so much easier than like refactoring HTML. Yeah. So something that I think is worth diving into there that I think is kind of interesting um, is, I guess, something I'd like to learn more about from your perspective is a lot of people are immediately very put off by this approach of like writing class names in your HTML that are like hyper specific in terms of the appearance that they're creating. Like, I think everyone has just been like conditioned for so long to believe that your HTML is this like pure, holy place that you can't, uh, you know, sort of semantic. Yeah. Like, yeah. you don't, you don't want to like vandalize it with all these, um, you know, presentational class names and stuff. Was that uh, something that ever bothered you? And if so, how did you sort of get past that or rationalize it in your head? Yeah, so, yeah, that's exactly the first feedback, I think, that uh, we got when we started putting together the library that would become Purple 3, as we call it. It was the sort of third iteration, I guess, of our of our um, styling system. Um, it was exactly that feedback, like the templates getting overloaded with really long kind of class attributes. Um, it not making any sense if you're trying to kind of gleam any sort of semantic information from, uh, you know, a ton of divs and spans and all that kind of stuff. And our approach to kind of solving that originally was um, essentially building our own tooling on top of the Tachyons tooling um, in order to sort of componentize essentially um, a bunch of CSS classes. And obviously in Tailwind, we have the apply method, which, which does that, right? It takes, um, yeah, it takes another class and copies essentially its properties into another one so that you can create something like a button primary class that is actually essentially wrapping, you know, five or six atomic um, CSS classes. Um, and yeah, we, we build that uh, as a little tool that we call the Yank. Um, 
and we used it for the sort of elements that developers were having to write a lot in front-end code. So things like buttons, um, things like text inputs, essentially the sort of like standard HTML forms. And that actually really, um, you know, that combined with using components of the actual JavaScript framework, in this case Ember, um, I think really pretty much allayed the fears that we had uh, or that, that some people had around essentially kind of littering uh, the DOM with, uh, or not the DOM, but the attributes of the DOM with a string of long class names. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. I think something that's kind of interesting too that like I wanted to get into was um, you mentioned that in Purple Three, you still use classes for things like like buttons and inputs and stuff. Is that something that you still feel good about uh, to this day? Because I know if you read through like some of Adam Morse's stuff, for example, he mm. he's pretty adamant about like that being a bad idea, which I think is one place that me and him tend to disagree in general. But I also, mm. I th- one thing I thought was interesting with Heroku is that you guys are still, even though you're using Ember, which means you could create a button component and just reuse yeah. that and have all the um, atomic CSS classes just right in, you know, the, the tag, you're still creating classes for these kind of like really small reusable things like badges and buttons and inputs. Um, how has yeah. that like worked out? Is, has that been a regrettable decision in any way? Or do you think like for the type of product that Heroku is that has actually been, you know, a better approach? So I think, well, actually, I guess the, 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 the main point is that um, even though our product is written in Ember, um, and I said we're all in on that, what I really mean to be more kind of nuanced is one of our, our main products is written in Ember, but we do actually support with Purple 3 a, a really broad spectrum of applications that consume it. And that ranges from totally static HTML, um, sort of pages, to uh, React applications, various different sort of flavors of React applications, uh, Rails apps with jQuery. Um, and so ideally, you know, in, in, a, in, a purely, uh, in a pure utopia of having a really clean stack that we never step outside of, I would agree that you know the best thing to do is to wrap your classes at the component level, um, but pragmatically that just wasn't going to work for us, and it made much more sense to 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 let the CSS framework bring um, some of these kind of uh, wrapped classes um, to the applications because yeah we couldn't we basically just couldn't rely on the framework being the same um, of the teams that were consuming it. Um, So, yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think like that's, that's the one place where I feel like um, I feel like it does still make sense to create these custom classes once in a while. If, because CSS, I guess to me, it's like CSS works everywhere, right? It's like this portable thing that's going to work no matter what stack you're on. Um, so for things that are just like a single element, I think it can make a, a lot of sense. When you get into things that are more complicated and that have like seven different tags, well, now things are going to start being a little bit less beneficial because you do have to manage like everyone knowing what combination of tags to use and what HTML structure to use to recreate that that component. But yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for for just that simple stuff. So yeah, um, and I think I was gonna yeah like the. Uh, as web components become more of a thing as well, I think that hopefully that becomes the stack agnostic mm, option, yeah. right? Like we we let CSS do what it's good at doing and we wrap these tiny little components into these things which we can drop into Ember or React or a Rails application with uh, jQuery, drive it that way. Um, and then we're, we're actually packaging the look and feel into a thing that's portable. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. So jumping around the timeline a little bit, I guess, um, you mentioned that before you started working on like exploring, introducing tachyons in Heroku, everything sort of just like felt kind of out of control. Um, would you attribute that to just the fact that there wasn't a lot of like diligence and structure around how CSS was being written in general? Or do you think like the actual approach to authoring the CSS was a factor as well. Like, do you think you could have switched, do you think you could have solved those problems without switching to like 
an atomic CSS approach, or do you think switching to the atomic CSS approach was really important for solving a lot of those problems? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think the, I definitely think that the atomic CSS uh, approach really addressed the kind of root of our problem, right? Which was these sprawling CSS files that we were creating. It was really hard for us to figure out where what CSS was actually being used and what wasn't. And so we kind of just defaulted to never deleting any, any style sheets. Um, and that left us in this situation where, you know, you would be writing a uh, new interface up and you'd have classes that you weren't sure were being used anywhere else in the application that were like affecting your layout because, you know, for example, all paragraph uh, tags get a margin on the bottom of them. And maybe that's just the bootstrap default. And then, you know, on some pages we'd globally overwritten that and some pages we hadn't. And it just became really unpredictable, I think is the, is the key, uh, the key kind of insight is that you never really knew when you wrote some CSS and applied it to a class, whether it was actually going to turn out how you'd written it down. Um, and obviously that's a really big problem for productivity and just also having a really robust feeling application, I think. Um, and so, yeah, having, the, having this kind of atomic CSS approach where we drastically cut down the amount of CSS that we were writing and then we kind of went back and did a sort of post-mortem on all the interfaces that existed and migrated them to using Purple 3 um, it, it really, really helped us, uh, both with, you know, the maintainability problem, but also with the speed of now writing interfaces. Like I think, um, generally it's been a really huge success for us in being able to now write these interfaces, uh, write some HTML, use Purple 3 and that, uh, being portable from, you know, I can type something up in a JS fiddle or like a, a code sandbox somewhere. And it's going to look exactly the same in whatever product because there's suddenly none of these... Um, like lingering uh, global styles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> none, of these, none of these collisions anymore. And that's just been uh, so... It's been a real glimpse, I think, of the future in a way. And now, you know, with these sophisticated tools that, that are sort of popping up, um, post-CSS and the ability to actually... Uh, you know, see what CSS is, is essentially like dead, not being used by templates and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that that whole process of, of building out a web app UI is just getting more and more sophisticated and just so much better than it was even, a few, you know, a few years ago. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, uh, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API that's really just scratching the surface 
surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Something that um, I've personally found that I'm curious to know if, th- if this rings true for your experiences at Heroku. I feel like um, a lot of people talk about this like utopian world where even if you're using like a traditional CSS approach, you've like cre- crafted these beautiful style sheets that define like all the components and everything that the site is ever going to need. And from that point forward, like all you have to do is reuse the existing patterns anytime you want to build anything on a site. And I've found in my experience that anytime I'm building an application, there is much more like bespoke stuff than there is reusable stuff. As much as like two things might like look similar in this context, this needs to be slightly different. And I feel like I'm like, I don't actually reuse stuff as much as um, it seems like you should be able to, or as much as it's sort of preached that you should be able to, yeah. you know what I mean? So I'm curious to know, like uh, at Heroku, especially in like the pre- sort of tachyon's era how often were you able to like introduce new ui to the application without writing new css at all and just like taking advantage of previously defined components you know like like the stuff you get with bootstrap like tabs and cards mm-hmm. and wells and stuff like that did it seem like every time that you were adding new html you were adding new css yeah entirely like i mean there was almost nothing uh Nothing reusable out of the box with Bootstrap because it's so, I think maybe it's changed now, but at the time it was so focused on marketing materials, I think much more than kind of product UI, or at least that's how I think it felt to me. Um, And, you know, Bootstrap comes out of the box with a bunch of textiles and all this kind of stuff that you actually don't really need at all um, in your kind of typical web app. Um, But yeah, we were having to write uh, a lot of CSS for pretty much every new feature that was that was going into the product back then. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, right? Because like going back to something you said a little while ago, you said one of the things that you really like about using the Tachyon system that you built at Heroku is that you can delete some HTML and you don't have to worry that like there's styles somewhere that are now obsolete that can also be deleted and um to me that sort of like signifies that there's this like as much as everyone talks about like separation of concerns like your css should be about your styles and your html should be about your content if like you delete some html and now like you don't know like what or or now there's like css that doesn't need to exist because it was only used for that HTML. That means there's like this really strong coupling between them anyways. Yeah. And exactly. we're like trying to like artificially like separate them, even though like this is meant for this, they are supposed to be, uh, you know, they only exist to like support each other. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. With um, the stuff that you've been doing uh, at Heroku with the, the tack and stuff, does it feel like that approach has like bitten you in any ways. Like I I know like one of the things that people say a lot about this sort of thing when they first see it is like, wow, that looks unmaintainable. Wow. That looks like it would be good for prototyping something, but there's no way that that would ever work at scale on a large team. So I'd be curious to know, like from your real experience working on a large team on a large, like Mm. global product like this, um, what, how has that actually played out? Ha- has there been pain points or have things been easier? So I think certainly, you know, the pain points exist and there's no silver bullets uh, in anywhere. Um, but on the whole, really the main pain point is the mental model change of, of pretty much exactly what you said, I think, of this idea of separation between 
the HTML and the sort of the document layout and the presentational layer, the sort of CSS. Um, that is a big, yeah, a big mental model change, especially if you really come from the kind of uh, golden era Web two um, kind of mindset and philosophy. Um, but I do think that, as you said, HTML and CSS are almost always really tightly linked anyway. And if you're writing something like Ben that we talked about earlier, you are, you're essentially creating that link uh, anyway because you're saying this uh, markup has to have uh, this exact like CSS tree definition as well. Yeah. And so, like I was saying, if you change anything, you have to change both anyway. So, so they're very, very tightly coupled. Um, and I, I really find it hard to uh, see how you could uh, kind of accuse, I guess, <laughs> a Tailwind or a Tachyons of being uh, unscalable because you're, it, like, I think the, the big difference is, you know, with, when, when I use Tailwind on a product, right, and I've uh, got a brand new side project, let's say, and I install it, and it gives me this huge palette of classes. And obviously, for the first thing I'm going to write, which is probably a sign-up screen and maybe a couple of pages, it looks, in a way, like overkill because I've got these hundreds of classes that I'm not using. Um, and maybe it's easier for me to write some custom CSS at that point. But that library isn't going to change size either, right? Like, as we... Uh, let's say three years down the line in my side project and it's been acquired by, I don't know, Big Corp Co for whatever reason. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, that, that library, because it is atomic and because it represents pretty much everything you can do with CSS anyway, um, unless you're talking about something very, very exclusive, it never has to grow. Um, and, you know, the additions that we've made to Purple over the years have been... Um, Normally, when we introduce a whole new uh, a whole new feature, which is very very rare, I think we've only done that maybe two or three times. Um, and the library, if you look at the size of it over time, really hasn't grown very much at all. Um, nowhere near as much as it would have grown if we'd been continued to write a new CSS file for every new interface or feature yeah. or set of components that we had. You know what I yeah. mean? So. Um, yeah, I, I can't, and, and, and on top of the kind of those benefits, the very human benefits, the performance benefits as well, if we're talking about scalability in that sense, are also uh, really evident, right? Because I don't have to dig very deep into this complex list of CSS rules that, you know, my browser has to figure out when it's rendering a page because there's such, uh, something like Tailwind, something like Tachyon, such flat structures. Yeah. Um, it's going to, it's going to give me really great performance on the web as well. So it just seems like a win-win from, you know, almost every angle that I look at it. Interesting. So have you found there to be like any maintainability issues, I guess, in terms of like people actually authoring um, the HTML? Like I know, like obviously everyone's first impression when they look at the markup, when you're building things this way, is it just looks like chaos. And, you know, you have elements that are like 150 characters long because there's 17 classes on it um how has that like actually been in practice like how what do you hear like to people on the team saying when they're working with stuff this way are people finding it easier to work harder to work like i'm just curious i guess in general like what people's experience has been how people's like opinions have changed since the time like the you first switched this approach to now. Um, mm. I'm just curious, anything that you can share about like, you've been using this approach for like what, like three years or something now, four years? Uh, maybe? Yeah, I think we started the kind of journey of migrating. I think it was probably about three, three and a half years ago. Yeah. So that's like a long time to be working with this new approach in the real world now. So I'm curious mm. about any, any of the, the experiences or things that have come up like in that time in terms of people's like overall sentiment about like how it's been to work in this way. Yeah. So I think 
I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone that's, you know, worked in that code base, but I think like generally when I speak to the team and we discuss this kind of things, um, there's normally, uh, like generally, I think everyone really likes this approach, right? And it's, uh, it's really easy to author things, uh, especially if I've got, you know, the learning curve of learning the sort of class names, especially in uh, something like Tachyons might be quite high for the first, you know, few weeks that I'm doing it. But then once I can kind of intuit the shape of the classes and all that kind of stuff, and obviously, you know, something like um, I started a new project with uh, Nuxt recently, a side project, uh, Nuxt.js, and you can bundle Tailwind as part of the package. And when you open it in VS Code, you're going to get Tailwind auto-completion when you start typing in a class name. And that kind of stuff is such a great you know, developer experience when you're, when you're writing these interfaces. Um, and I think, you know, when it, going back to sort of maintainability and, and scalability, I think generally if we've, if we've needed to re redesign something, we've normally just deleted that template or the vast majority of that template and just started again because it's so much easier uh, than having to maintain or like change um, a, as you say, like a really complex uh, HTML document that's got classes everywhere and I have to sort of pass it and figure out how that's going to look. It's, it's just so much easier to kind of just write out right there and then um, afresh. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's the real main, uh, the main way that we're working with it and the main way that we've sort of, uh, we've sort of, we're using it essentially day to day. Um, super pragmatic, but yeah, you can build really robust and very consistent interfaces. And that's just been uh, really awesome for us. Yeah. So compared to like, I guess what you were doing back in the, with the original sort of like bootstrap based version. And again, like, obviously I don't want to trash bootstrap anyway, because I think <laughs> it's a really great product and I've learned a lot yeah. from the people who work on it and the, and the sorts of, you know, it's, it's, it's a fantastic project, but, um, when you guys were working that way and your CSS kind of was out of control, do you feel like there's a big difference between then and now in terms of like the complaints and stuff that you would hear from people on the team or like the frustrations that people had when they had to style things? Yeah. And I think the main difference is that, well, let's, let's like in context, front end development has got so much more complex over the last seven years, let's say. Um, with the advent of like JavaScript frameworks and single page apps and um, the entire ecosystem is so much more complex than it was a decade ago. Um, and what that has led to, I think, is, you know, when I was at university and I was sort of studying, um, I was using CSS and stuff like that. And, you know, CSS, knowing CSS well is a skill unto itself, right? It's a whole, um, it's a whole uh, skill. But um, now that the, the uh, entire discipline is so much more nuanced and complex, like, I think you've, you find those characters that know CSS really, really well and enjoy writing it are much more sort of few and far between uh, than they used to be. Um, and I think that's the kind of beauty of essentially sort of treating your CSS more like an API, right? And bundling it into this abstraction where I don't actually have to um, have to know how to write beautiful CSS and uh, sort of pithy CSS and all this kind of sort of clever stuff. I just need to know roughly what I'm kind of trying to do um, mm. and the real foundational bits of CSS um, to build out a UI. And I can uh, put all my attention into actually, you know, and I think this is still a sort of biggest struggle on the web, building something that feels really good. And it's got like keyboard navigation and all the things that I would expect if I built an app using, um, you know, like a Mac OS native app or something, using the UI kit, all those really nice details that make something feel robust and reliable and performant. I can really focus much more on them than, you know, the exact pixels that my border radius is or it getting the attributes 
exactly right on my box shadow stuff like that yeah yeah for sure that actually um leads me to another question i think is something worth diving into um you, you sort of talked a little bit about how you don't really have to like write css right which is obviously that's nice something you don't have to do anymore yeah but i th- one of the things that i've heard people say about like approaches like tailwind and tachyons base css and, and all these sort of functional css tools is a lot of people who are really good at css will say like this i guess maybe is useful if like you're not good at css um do you feel like that has been true in terms of its use at heroku like do you think like the reason for the success of it has been the fact that oh well we just need to give some fisher price dumbed down tool to these (laughs) css incapable developers or do you feel like um you know it's just as valid of a of a tool for people who are you know really skilled at css as it is um for people who are not and and even more than that do you feel like you can even have success with this approach if like you aren't competent with css Mm. Uh, wow, a uh, lot to unpack in that question. <laughs> so um, I let's work backwards from from the end. So I do think, uh, yeah, I think it's a huge leg up. Like, why would I want to learn the complexities of CSS if I don't have to, right? Other than if I just want to kind of show off about it, which doesn't seem like a kind of nice attribute. Um, I think that you know, what we should be striving for always is to not invest our time and uh, effort into things that we that don't add value to whatever we're doing, right? And this applies to not just front-end development, but everything. Like, if I'm a startup and we haven't got product market fit yet, we shouldn't probably be running our own infrastructure and dealing with the kind of ins and outs of Kubernetes yeah. and this kind of stuff. Like, and that's why Heroku exists, right? For sure. It takes away uh, all of that stuff so I can just write some code and get it out to customers and users and I'd have to worry about security and all these things, which are obviously, you know, they're, they're very noble pursuits and it's, it's great that people are investing, obviously, time and effort into those things. But I don't, you know, I... I don't want to do that as a someone building a new product. And I think it's exactly the same for CSS, right? Like, obviously, if you want to, go ahead, like, knock yourself out, write a thousand lines of CSS for every, you know, page in your web app. But if I can abstract it away largely and uh, I can, I, you know, I don't see why this wouldn't apply to a absolutely pro um, CSS sort of writer, developer as well, why would I spend time writing something that's already been abstracted away if I can just focus on where I'm really adding that like super, I don't know, beautiful UI or something that I'm, that I'm like handcrafting through some CSS. Um, and I, I think what the misconception is normally, and this is obviously like a kind of uh, one of probably Boots, Bootstrap's biggest uh, criticisms, is um, you don't want to end up with a kind of, I think you used this phrase, but like a cookie cutter UI where it just looks the same as every other Bootstrap app. And like, I mean, personally, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing at all um, because normally what that says to me is like, oh, this is going to work pretty nice, uh, to be honest. Um, And, you know, again, you look at something like a native, the native Mac UI suite, every app looks the same. Yeah, and like the, the goal is for things to look the same and reuse right, the same and, buttons and same menus and yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, I'd love to take this one step uh, further where we have in the browser available to us today this whole like suite of built-in components, right? Like a drop-down menu and a like a form input and a button. And they all work in exactly the same way across browsers, pretty much. Um, But if we could get to the point where the web has its own UI kit that works just like, I don't know, the iOS UI kit, and yeah, sure, it's like customizable in terms of some style, but the base principles of how it works and how it's accessible and how it um, interacts are codified and immutable, I think that would be amazing, (laughs) to be honest, because 
I don't want to reinvent, you know, how a modal works every time I need to use one in, yeah. I don't know, some side project or in a product that we're working on. I just want to have that uh, pattern available to me and be able to, as quickly as possible, put these things together, stop worrying about you know, writing CSS and writing HTML and just have that product that people are using and it's, give, it's adding value to their time. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, for example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracasts as well. Uh, one of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So another question I have for you is um, you have Purple 3, which is like your sort of internal library for building like actual product UIs. Uh, But then after Purple 3, you introduced a Shibori, which is like the same sort of thing, but for the marketing properties on Heroku, which I don't like, I'm not sure how much further this came after, um, but I'm curious to know, I guess, like how you find the same approach has been working for like how it compares when you're building like a product UI with like lots of buttons and forms and tabs and stuff like that versus marketing pages, which are often much more about making like a, a digital poster in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? Like a very, very different. Mm. Um, so how has that worked out given like the two sort of very different natures of those two pieces of UI development? Yeah. So I, I can't speak to this fully, but I think because so Shibori is really owned by a kind of marketing um, uh, or like web marketing team. So it's kind of out of my uh, and sure. the sort of Heroku's okay. product design team, like Remit. Um, but that said, I think it's really they saw what we were gaining on the product side and wanted to emulate the same thing for the website. Um, and, you know, similar sort of problems, I think basically exist when you're making a, making a sort of marketing website as to when you're making a product. And uh, yeah, I think they basically just wanted to employ the same, uh, same kind of base framework, but be able to extend it in ways that we might not, uh, might not be desirable on the product side. And that's why it becomes this kind of like fork. Yeah. Essentially of, um, of purple. Gotcha. Cool. Um, when you're doing stuff, uh, in the product using this approach, sometimes you run into situations, at least I do where, even with this like giant suite of atomic classes that you can apply to kind of do whatever you want, you still hit things that are like hyper specific, weird CSS things that you need to do. Like I need to create some background image that's like very specifically positioned, like top minus 117 pixels. And like, you know what I mean? Like that's sort of like hyper specific, like not really design systemy stuff that you run into. I'm always curious to know like how people on different teams are approaching those sorts of styling situations when using an approach like you are with tachyons. What is generally the way that you solve those sorts of issues when you're using the tools that you have? So, I mean, I think we're doing it in a, probably quite a rudimentary way actually to be honest on the um on the heroku dashboard which is will create a CSS file and add the styles to that but i think what we'd probably like to move towards is um a system where the css is scoped to whatever component that you're working on Right, so that if we've got, I don't know, like a header component to use your example that has like a background image, um, 
within the same file or within an associated file to that component is uh, some CSS because it gets applied to it and is like scoped by the framework or by some library, you know, specifically to that component. Again, actually with, um, I've been a really big fan uh, in my sort of spare time and side projects hacking around with um, Vue.js and and I mentioned um, Nuxt, um, which is essentially a sort of entire application framework using Vue. And uh, I love, I love their system of um, the .view file, right? Of uh, it contains it contains the template, a style declaration, and they're really tightly bound to each other. And I can chuck in a scoped um, property, and I know that nothing is going to kind of like leak out of that component. Yeah. Um, I really like that approach, and I think that's yeah, definitely what we'd like to. Nice. Yeah, I think that approach works really well too. That's that's exactly the way that I've been doing it with Vue and really enjoyed it. You just you have that style block, it's right in that file, and you can you can sort of think of it as like this is the block of hyper specific CSS for this component, which most components don't end up needing using a that sort of approach. But when you do mm. need it, there's a home for it already. And it's you don't have to come up with some solution where you're diving into a CSS file and trying to decide, should I how should I name this so that people know that they're connected or whatever? I found like yeah. another approach that's worked okay when uh, when your needs aren't super complex is literally just inline styles on uh, things, but then you can't do like fancy hover stuff or media queries or any of that stuff. So it's a bit limiting yeah. in that sense too. Yeah, um, yeah. So I guess like the the final thing that I want to talk to you about a little bit and this is like totally changing gears, but just because I think this is a fun project, is you open source this pylon CSS thing oh, yeah, uh, right. back in like the summer, I think. And uh, I think it's a really fun little example <laughs> of, you know, a, a, a cool thing that way that you can put together something for building layouts with um, CSS. So do you mind talking a little bit about like what that is and what sort of inspired you to, to hack on that? Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, so Pylon uh, is, I'll give a kind of quick description of it first. It's a really, really, really super light um, CSS library that um, encapsulates kind of basically Flexbox um, and allows you to do, uh, l- to build layouts essentially. And uh, it was really inspired by two things in particular. Um, I had spent some time playing with, so uh, there's a a CSS grid system uh, called Raster. um, And it's really nice, uh, uses all the sort of like modern uh, CSS. Um, (laughs) Sorry, my mic's just gone totally blank. CSS grid, that's what it's it's called. And one of the things that's really unique about Rasta, and it's the first time I've ever seen it, although it's really obvious that it exists when you think about it, is the fact that they, um, rather than using class names that you apply to your HTML, it actually defines, it targets components, right? It targets the tag names. Yeah, like and, custom elements, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, it really kind of blew my mind slightly, actually, that, of course, if you give the browser now a custom element, it, it treats it, as if it's totally valid because obviously web components exist now and it doesn't expect them to be part of the HTML spec yeah. necessarily. Um, so I was really, that, even though that's so, you know, kind of simple, I really loved the idea that you can make HTML actually what it's supposed to be, I think, which is really declarative, right? And you, again, you're tightly binding how things look to how you write the HTML. Um, and I actually, I think I really like that approach and, you know, that's part of the reason I like this atomic CSS approach so much. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of flying around in my mind. And then Swift UI was dem- demonstrated, at, um, I guess it was WWDC. Yeah. Um, and Swift UI is exactly that, right? It's like super declarative where, um, as little as possible, in the user interface is programmatic. Like I'm not creating buttons and then assigning them position and all this kind of stuff. I'm just telling Swift, I'm declaring 
this is what I want on the page, this is the order of importance, uh, this thing goes to this flow, this thing goes into this navigation controller. And what's so smart, I think it's just so smart, like what Apple have done with this system they're creating is that like your, what you, now the separation is between that declarative UI language and the target, right? So the same markup essentially can now create a interface for an iOS app or for a watch app or for Apple TV. They handle how it gets essentially like translated into those UIs. Um, and I thought that was really, really smart. And I love that idea. Um, and yeah, and then I started hacking around with Pylon and uh, really using SwiftUI as basically uh, the, the blueprint for yeah. it. Um, kind of making a few elements, playing with it. And then I played with it on um, something I was hacking around with at the time. Really enjoyed it. Really liked that you could bake into it some just like sane defaults for Flexbox. So for example, um, one of the things I always forget, and this goes to show that I'm no pro CSS developer, <laughs> is the uh, is basically how everything in Flexbox works. <laughs> <laughs> so I always forget what the difference is between like alignment and justification and which way things are going and yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff is just, you know, I, I don't want to think about that. Um, and what Pylon does is just give you, yeah, like a super, a super declarative um, kind of language so that you, um, everything is always um, relative in Pylon. So if you say like align top, it knows what you mean and it will change that depending on which direction things are kind of flowing in. Um, and yeah, it's like a much more, uh, I think it's just a much more sort of user-friendly API, I guess, to, to Flexbox in a way. Uh, and obviously it's not as powerful and all that kind of stuff, but for, I don't know, 90% of situations where I'm, uh, and again, this is a similar thing to Tailwind, right? 90% of situations, it works really, really well. And for yeah. that extra 10%, I'm happy to write a bit of custom CSS and like, like dive into the language itself. Um, but yeah, I'm like uh, really interested, I guess, generally also in domain specific languages these dsls um sure. i love uh this is a little bit off topic but there's a great programming language called racket okay. um, racket lang and rackets usp so it's a um it's a lisp uh, style language okay. um but it's usp is that you can build other languages with it and there's some amazing work that has been done by the community to build languages that like produce books from markup and they're really beautiful and it you know the target of that can be a book or it can be a pdf or it can be a uh, web page um and yeah that stuff i guess really inspiring as well yeah yeah so i mean on the note of like the dsl i think it'd be worth talking a little bit about just so people listening can understand as, as best we can do in audio format but like what mm. it actually looks like to work with pylon so you mentioned there's like custom elements i'm looking at the the docs right now so oh, yeah. what you mean by that it's instead of stuff like divs and spans if you want to put like some stuff to next to each other in a row in tailwind yeah. you would do like div class equals flex maybe like justify between or item center or whatever but in mm. pylon like you don't use a div at all you just use like this made up element called h stack which is yeah. just like a horizontal stack and exactly. now you're just like declaratively saying like i'm not taking a div and giving it a display of flex and like sort of like you know really mingling in the details there you're literally just mm -hmm. saying like this is what this is it is a row of things anything that you put in it will be displayed in a row yeah um, and then you have the same thing with like a vertical one uh, which adds some, with like attributes for doing like different modifications, like how much space should be between the elements and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And that approach as well, like that, um, there's something really powerful in that approach of saying, so, so yeah, let's go back to your example in like a, a, a Intelwind, for example, let's say I've got a row and it's part of a, um, a sort of table, like layout for some app UI we're building. Yeah. And on the left, we've got some text and on the right, we've got some icons, right? And to space the icons out, I'm going to add a margin um, to probably each of those icons. Yeah. Let's say like an MR2 in, in uh, something like Tachyons to put a margin on the right. Um, but now if we, let's say, you know, sometime down the line, something unexpected happens in that 
component, like let's say some new element is, is put into it uh, dynamically, um, that also has to have the same spacing applied to it, right? And it, or, if, or if something in the layout changes whereby one of those icons gets taken out, maybe things don't quite line up anymore because yeah. they each element has to care about its own spacing relative to other things. Whereas, yeah, I liked, I really liked this approach of, of having like a yeah, horizontal stack and we say, okay, the spacing between everything is small. And regardless of how many things you add into it, it's always going to look correct. Um, and you can still, of course, like overwrite it at the, at the more specific level. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that approach. Um, and again, like always my goal is just really, uh, I've used this word a bunch of times, but I can't think of a better one, like robust UIs that don't feel like they're fragile. And I feel so often you use something on the web in particular and they feel really fragile. Like it's going to kind of break at any moment or like, um, and yeah, I guess I really wanted to pursue that idea with, um, with Pylon. Yeah. It's a very cool, very cool project. Do you have any like, um, plans for doing anything more with it than what you already have is it is it just kind of like a r&d sort of fun thing or <laughs> or is it something that you've been playing with more on your own projects and stuff like that i mean i think yeah definitely for now it's a kind of it was a sort of playground for an idea and i i got a lot of uh a lot of pushback on the idea when uh i i think i stuck it on the hacker news uh when i put it up on GitHub and there was a ton of, of really negative feedback, I think probably, probably more than the positive feedback, which was, <laughs> I mean, it's, something. <laughs> <laughs> but it's exactly the same stuff that we talked about for the tailwind gets right of, uh, it's not semantic. The tags don't mean anything, uh, which, you know, is absolutely true. Um, although one of the ideas that I, that I thought, I might work on at some point is an accessibility layer um, over Pylon, right? So like, it's not ideal because it would use JavaScript, but I think it's still a kind of interesting experiment where you can say um, in Pylon, there's an element called um, list. So, uh, and, and a list is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, it's all, it's always vertical um, and it, wraps a bunch of things. And what we can intuit when you use um, a tag like that is basically the accessibility um, properties that need to be added to the elements within it to treat it like a list and those kind of things. And, uh, you know, obviously, ideally, you want to use um, uh, HTML kind of spec elements for those kind of things. But like, m like more and more, uh, interfaces aren't being built that way, I think. Um, and a lot of the heavy lifting of like when semantic does become important, uh, particularly for things like screen readers, that burden has shifted onto developers, right? Rather than the language. And that's a problem because uh, now everyone has to become an, potentially an accessibility expert, just like you did with CSS 10 years ago or whatever. So I, yeah, I really like the idea of trying to extract as much as possible from like the pylon tags into something where it can treat them, you know, you, you can get the both of the best of both worlds um, where I have this really great developer experience and it's a really good end user experience as well. For sure. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, um, have you looked at like react native web much? Uh, it's like yeah, a project by a Nicholas Gallagher. He uh, they use it for the Twitter's new website where it's oh, right. literally everything is a div, including buttons and everything like that. But it's mm. totally accessible, and it's all oh, because right. like they built it using React Native Web, where they're not ever writing a div or a span. They're using all these like made up things to have all these accessibility stuff like baked into it, so it just kind of works. Yeah. So it's definitely like an interesting um, sort of angle to explore. Yeah, that's really cool. I'll check that out. Um, I think like the one thing about Pylon that uh, I think is worth pointing out, the part of it that I think is like the absolute most offensive, which is what makes me like it so much, is the uh, the spacer element. Yeah. Um, so like if if you if you are like a CSS purist or were at any point in time. 
but like started using something like tachyons or tailwind and like we're able to come to terms with it and realize okay you know what this is actually not so bad like this spacer element is like the next thing that's going to like trigger you again (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) which is like it's an element which is meant to display nothing but exists only to like push things apart from each other yeah exactly Um, so i love that to me it feels like just like another middle finger to the uh, (laughs) best practices again which is is always fun to explore pushing the boundaries there really influenced by um how toolbars work in mac os yeah so yeah the the flexible space which is yeah it does nothing other than push other things apart um but yeah, I really, I don't know, I really like it. It's like a really nice idea and it's really, it's really obvious what is going to happen when I put it yeah. in, uh, you know, like a horizontal stack or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, really, that's a good point. <laughs> good stuff. Cool, man. Well, um, that's basically all I got in terms of questions for you. So maybe it's a good time to start uh, wrapping things up. But you know, if people wanted to follow what you're up to and keep up with some of the new stuff you're working on, either at Heroku and Salesforce or uh, with Pylon, uh, what's the best way for people to do that? Um, probably on Twitter, I guess, which is where I, I use it a hell of a lot of time. But if I'm, you know, looking at anything exciting or cool, I always end up posting on Twitter and I'm twitter.com slash Almonk. Cool. Sounds good. Well, thanks again for coming on the show and giving me your time, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this stuff. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been really great. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alistair about scaling CSS at Heroku. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 128. Thanks to Cloudinary and DigitalOcean for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.